Welcome to Behind the Page, the Eli Marks podcast, with your hosts, John Gaspard and me, Jim Cunningham. Hey there, Jim. Hey, Jono. How are you? I'm good. It is episode 205, season two, episode five, chapter five of The Bullet Catch. We are just cruising along. We're almost done with the second book. Well, not almost, but we're certainly well into the second book, which is which is fantastic for those of you who are actually listening to The Bullet Catch. Some of you I know just listen to this part and the interviews and skip the book, which is fine. But uh, in the book at uh, at this point, Eli is attempting to teach his friend, actor uh, Jake North, how to appear to be a magician on film. And so our next few episodes, maybe more than a few, are going to be under the catch-all theme of building a better magician. Boy, did we talk to some great magicians who weighed in on this I know. Topic. It is... I, I can't believe they talked to us. I really, really can't. Exactly. Why would they talk to us? That's I don't... Question. Why would anybody talk to us? Why would you talk to me? I, you know, if I didn't have to, I wouldn't. It's just that simple. Really, I mean, really, the quality of uh, our guests astonishes me. It's really. the most magical thing about this podcast are the people. Amen. Amen. And the proof is in the pudding of uh, David Parr. David is joining us today to talk with us about storytelling in magic. He is a, a central figure for me in learning about magic, just even though he, I came to him late in the process. I think uh, the first book was already done when I met David, but I went and saw him at your recommendation when he was doing uh, the cabaret in Chicago. And I got to not only see him do Dead Man's Hand, but actually do it with him. Oh, and then to have him come visit us two, maybe three times. I forget. I mean, he came up a lot to do Sunday Night Magic. Uh, just, yeah. hey, you guys need somebody? Boom. And he's here. He's and it's such a wealth of knowledge. He's such a, uh, a profound thinker on whatever subject he turns his intelligence to. Um, and we are so fortunate to have him as our friend, but also as a guest on the podcast. Because if you want to talk about storytelling magic. Um, he really is incredible when it comes to that. The amount of time he puts in to structuring it, the way he goes about, um, you know, just taking notes about anything throughout the year and that those notes become something that might, and the way he filters everything uh, that he does essentially through his own I'm fascinated by this and yeah. because he's fascinated by it, suddenly I'm fascinated by it. Uh, it his fascination is, uh, is what leads us there. And he's just terrific, a terrific magician, but a great performer on top of that. Cause I, I don't think those two things are synonymous necessarily. No, I don't think they are. He knows so much, but is so down to earth about it. Let's just jump into that a conversation. The first thing we asked him was uh, probably a pretty key question about storytelling. <laughs> Why is storytelling just in general an important thing? Human beings are storytelling animals. Uh, stories are how we understand the world around us and, and our place in it. Our memories are our narrative. Our memories are stories that we tell ourselves and tell others. And what we know as history is a story that's passed down from generation to generation. 
we are just we are built to consume narrative it's difficult for a human being to avoid becoming engaged by a narrative so if i'm going to if i have a limited time in which to engage with my audience the quickest most direct path to do that is to engage them with a story that's that's the most surefire tool i know talk a little bit about the role storytelling plays in the performance of your magic. I understand why stories are important now, and I agree with you, but talk specifically how you use stories or what stories can do in a magical performance. Well, I look at it this way. If, if I can give my audience multiple levels on which to engage with my performance, I increase the likelihood that they'll engage with me. You know, there's the there's the sort of um, technical puzzle level of magic that's right at the surface, and that's that's the deception level of magic, right? The the level where our senses are fooled into seeing something impossible happen, and you know, while some people find that fun some people find that annoying <laughs> i mean that's that's the fact that there's there are certain people who are who tend to be puzzle minded in their lives and those people tend to see magic as a puzzle that demands a solution and they'll they'll fret away and worry away at trying to reach a solution to it and some people find that process unfun. And so, and so if I want to engage with those people and have them relax and let go of that puzzle thinking and enjoy my show, the way I, I found to do that is to engage them on the theatrical level, on the dramatic level, which is the narrative level. And if they can get into the story, they'll often become engaged in the magic without really knowing that that's what they're becoming engaged in uh, because they've, they've been hooked by the story. Do you have an example from your own career when you felt a trick became stronger because you, you wrapped it in a story? Uh, yeah, yeah. In fact, I have a very, a very strong example of it. Um, I... I was performing magic for a, a festival, and so there were there were events happening all around the, this town square, and I had stationed myself in a bookstore because I thought, well, this is where I feel most at home, <laughs> here in this bookstore. So I set up my table and everything, my little pop-up parlor of mystery, and uh, and I started doing magic for people. And at one point, I noticed. Um, there was a, a young woman and her son who looked like he was about seven years old and they were they kind of cut a swath around me and as they were passing by i said hey would you like to see some magic and the woman looked at me like mm, and, and it she was going to say no but her son of course was like yeah so he starts walking over toward me so i just I had him take a seat and and the, the his mom just kind of stood hovered nearby and I began performing magic for her son and 
I found that about three to maybe five minutes into my performance, mom, who was standoffish at the beginning, started to engage with me. She started to like laugh at the jokes and she started to respond to questions and she started to ask questions herself. And eventually she was, she was in the audience <laughs> and she was clearly having fun along with her son. And at the end of my set, uh, her son took off and went exploring the children's section of the bookstore. And this woman said to me, she said, you know, I didn't think I liked magic. And as performers, we seldom get a glimpse into how our audience is processing our performance. So when someone gives me that opportunity, I tune in and I listen because it's rare. So I said, why? Why did you think you didn't like magic? And she said, well, because I can't figure it out and that's just frustrating. And, that, and that's exactly what I'm talking about. She's, she was one of those puzzle-minded people that finds the, the open-endedness of the mystery of magic irksome. <laughs> and, and so she can't get past that and enjoy the performance, but she had in my case. So she, she went on to say, I didn't think I liked magic, but I liked what you did. I liked the stories. And now she started talking about all the things I had spoken of during my performance. She like relayed back all this information that I had dropped to, from the narratives I had used. So she retained all that stuff so clearly she had engaged with me and it was because I gave her another level on which to engage with the performance and to engage with me. And that was the dramatic level, the, the, the narrative level. And that enabled her to let go of the puzzle mind for a little while anyway, and enjoy it and have fun. I love that. All of that. I love that story. That's a good, uh, is there, is there any example that you can think of either from your own work or just in general where that sort of approach just flat out didn't work? It was like, Oh, I'm going to have to cut to the chase because they're not listening. Words can sometimes get in the way. <laughs> they can sometimes be an obstacle between the audience and the experience of mystery that's at the heart of magic. And my task as the performer, as the magician, is to know those moments when, when the story will enhance the performance and enhance my engagement with the audience, or the moments where I have to shut up and get out of the way and let them experience the mystery of it all. And at if that point, at those points, any words I say are an obstacle between the audience and that experience. So if I perform something and it gets stunned silence at the end instead of, oh, that was fun or whatever, I have to, I've had to learn to let that ride out, which is not easy at first because the fear is that if I, if I let silence stretch out, I might lose the audience. It means I'm losing them. And so the reflex, the automatic response is, we'll say something. Say something to fill in the silence. In fact, say something funny so they laugh. And then you know you have them, right? 
And, and I've had to learn to tamp down that fear and let the silence ride out so that they can experience, absorb the mystery that just happened. It, it, because what's happening is the stunned silence is that they're processing, they're absorbing it and processing the experience. And if I, if I step on it with a joke, then I've, I've knocked down the house of cards I just took the, all that time to build, right? <laughs> so uh, I can think of one specific instance where I was booked to perform in a, a fringe theater festival with a new show. I was doing a version of the effect where the magician takes a long piece of thread, breaks it into lots of little pieces, balls it up, and then stretches it out, and it's restored in one long piece again. And I had written this elaborate script that was like, a, it was a narrative in the sort of Arthurian legend mode uh, about a wizard and a king and all this stuff to go with this magic effect. And the night before the show opened, I was rehearsing, and I was rehearsing in front of a mirror, as I've done since I was a kid, um, just to check the, the audience's point of view on the effect itself. And as I was performing this magic effect in the mirror and running through the script, which I had uh, lying on the floor next to me, so I, in case I needed to check it, I just, I, I suddenly became sort of entranced by the, the simplicity of this magic effect. That broken and restored thread effect is like one of the rare effects in magic where the closer the audience looks, like stares at your hands, the more baffling it is. I mean, usually you're trying to persuade the audience to not stare at your hands during the performance, but with this, they can stare at your hands all day. And it and it, it becomes more mysterious because it's like, what? how could that have happened? So I, I had this realization as I was watching it in the mirror and I thought, wait, is this story enhancing this effect? And the answer was no. The answer that immediately came to mind was no. And I thought, I can't, I can't do that script. I can't. The script is getting in the way of the beauty of this, the, the simplicity of this. What I realized in performing it for the audience in that show was that a narrative is not necessarily spoken. It was the process of tearing the thread into pieces and balling it up and then restoring it is the narrative. So, so it's, it was like I needed to get the script out of the way so the audience could focus on that narrative. So what I want my audience to be able to do, one of my goals after my performance is I want, I want them to retain enough of it that they can describe what happened to someone who wasn't there. And if the magic is too complex or convoluted, they're not going to be able to do that. But if the magic is simple and direct and has a very clear narrative, someone who saw the show can convey that, describe it to someone who wasn't there in, a, in basically a sentence. You know, we've known each other for 30 plus years. And, uh, and so I've watched your magic for a long time and loved it from the minute I saw it. 
But most of the things, most of the stories that you tell are rooted in your interests. So it's not like you just didn't pull something out of the, the story that you tell about your love of horror movies or your, you know, I mean, these are all things that you are, you are passionate about and love. And then you weave a story that disarms us. I think there's a certain amount. I'm, I'm not a finger pointer guy. Cause I, I certainly take an easy way out when I can, but that's a harder path to walk. I think for, for a creator of anything to, uh, to have that level of commitment where I'm going to, I'm going to filter this with my own because uh, what if I don't I don't care about monster movies. You make <laughs> that, you know what I mean? You that's a I I see what you're getting at. I, but but I kind of view it from the opposite side and that's a to me it's easier to be myself. Like and I had this realization as an actor doing roles in plays and that was that the more of myself I bring to the role, the happier everyone's going to be. And so the realization of, oh, this person cast me in this role because she saw some qualities in me as a person that she wanted me to bring to that role. And if she wanted someone else with different qualities, she would have cast somebody else. So the more of myself I bring to the role, the happier she's going to be, the director of the show, the happier the audience is going to be because they'll sense the sincerity of my performance, and the happier I'll be because I can relax, bring myself to the table, and enjoy the process of acting. And that totally applies to magic. If I can just relax and be me, then I can have fun engaging with the people in my audience. I don't have to like try to be who I think they want me to be because that's that's a thing I can never achieve. The person they meet on stage when they see my show is me. <laughs> and the, and and by the time they leave the theater, they should have a a really good impression of like who I am as a person not as a performer, but as a person, like what my interests and obsessions are since my childhood, what my history is, all that stuff. Now, to me, that's the, that's the path of least resistance. Trying to be someone, to pretend to be someone I'm not, that is difficult. That, that question of how to be genuine on stage, I think is at the root of so much uh, uh, of a performer's fears and their desires. How to be genuine on stage uh, is the is the crux of the biscuit. Yes. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I think so because I think everyone in the audience has an inner radar that detects falseness, and if if my audience thinks that my on stage persona is a put on. I'm sunk. I'm sunk. It's going to be so difficult to connect with them as a human being, right? But if I'm myself and they get the sense that, wow, this guy really cares about the things he's talking about, even if I'm not into those things, like if I'm in the audience and I'm not into monster movies and I'm not into magic and I'm not into ghost stories and, and all that stuff, I can sense how passionate that person who's talking about it is. And that passion and interest rubs off on me. 
because emotional states are contagious right so if yeah. the audience senses how my enthusiasm and passion for these things it it it's contagious for them they start to feel that and that's that engages them so when i can i'm as honest as i can be ab about my myself I, I've said this often in your presence and behind your back, David, but one of the things I admire about your magic is that you have put a lot of thought into it, a lot of thought, more thought than than a lot of other people put into anything, really. not I'm not saying just magicians. I mean, you put a lot of thought into what you're doing and you have subtracted essentially those moments when somebody might think to themselves, well, I don't know exactly what he did, but I know when he did it. Mm. And that undermines the magical experience. You've also spent a lot of time scripting your show, that, mm -hmm. that your shows when you perform, that you have, this isn't by chance, you're not standing up there winging it. It's not, uh, you know, although probably at this point you could, but that idea of, of scripting a performance, uh, why do you think maybe somebody might put the stop sign up or be afraid of that idea of, of sitting down and scripting out their entire show? Uh, I think there are a number of reasons why magicians might be resistant to that idea, why magicians are resistant to that idea, some of them. One of the reasons I think that that they're resistant to it is is a simple practical one and that is what i would call the terror of the blank page mm. and that is you sit down at your computer ready to type up a script and you stare at the screen and nothing happens and we've all been there anyone who has written anything has been there right and it's and it's like okay now what where are the words why is why is nothing happening and it's and it's usually because the task is too big to be manageable and so then our mind just goes blank so what i found during those moments is to to narrow my focus to something very simple and that's where to start and so what i what i usually do is and this was the way I learned to write term papers in school. It was the way I was taught to write a term paper. It's that the opening paragraph is your thesis statement. It's your statement of purpose. The middle is the proof of the thesis. And then the, the last paragraph is the restatement of the thesis in light of the proof, right? So what I found, the, e the easiest way to write the paper was write the beginning and the end first and then fill in the middle. So if I know where I'm starting on the map and I know where I'm going on the map, making a straight line between those two points is relatively simple. So I would always write the beginning and, the, and end paragraphs first and then write the body of the paper. And that's the way I usually write scripts now. And it gets past the terror of the blank page. If I, all I have to focus on is what's the first thing I'm going to say, or what's the last thing I'm going to say, then I can write that sentence and I'm on my way. There's, it's, I'm no longer staring at a blank page. <laughs> I've, I've tried doing the other thing where it's like, just let it spill out of your brain and onto the page. And that almost always fails for me. 
Well, yes, but I, I would have to say the, the work is definitely worth it. Um, and I, just as a an experiment, I would uh, suggest anyone go onto YouTube and type in Magic Act and li- listen to the first lines of most performances that are posted there, which are lines like, uh, well, uh, let's try this. Or, oh, uh, up next, why don't we? Or, uh, let's this this will be fun. Let's try a little experiment. And none yeah. of those come close to your opening lines, which immediately hook people. Well, because those sentences convey nothing. There is no information in any one of the sentences you spoke. <laughs> they, they convey zero. And that's because they're just f- space filler. They're, they're just said to fill in silence. And, and I personally, unless I have something to say that is some information to convey to my audience, I'd rather be silent. Uh, honestly and i think that is one another one of the reasons why magicians might be resistant to the idea of scripting their material and it's because what i've often told them to to do is to just okay focus on one piece a piece that you've been performing for a long time just record it and then transcribe exactly what you said and i think this is the problem because they think about it and they think oh, wow, how is all that stuff I say going to look when it's on the page? And what it's going to look like is garbage because all the all the ticks and weird repetitions and like sentences that don't make any sense, that are convoluted or, or grammatically awful and stuff, they're, they're glaring when they're on the page, right? So I think they're terrified to see, to look at in black and white what they're actually saying. But on the other side of facing that fear is actually gaining control over it. And that, to me, is worth staring down the fear of, uh, is most of what I'm saying to my audience garbage? (laughs) (laughs) I remember you saying once along these lines, because you aren't locked in to the degree that you might be suggesting. You said a script is not a straitjacket. No, it's not. It's a base structure for my performance. It provides it provides a solid structure so I always know where I am. It's, it's like a roadmap to my show, right? And so I always know where I am. I know what territory I'm in. And the freedom that that allows is that if I have the territory mapped out, I can deviate from the path. I always have my eyes and ears open. And if someone in the audience says something funny or provides a circumstance that will allow for a fun interaction, I deviate from my script and I follow that new path. I, f- I see where it goes. Because I know that, because I know the territory well enough, I can go right back onto the path that I need to follow to to complete the script, right? To to end the routine. It knowing that I know that territory gives me the freedom to explore when when opportunities arise. We've talked about this, but I, I just want to kind of revisit this idea for a minute because, you know, stories have a beginning, a middle, and an end, but you kind of go beyond that. You have a very strong 
beginning uh, in most of the stories you tell and a very memorable end, a nice hook and a nice blackout. Um, just talk again about the value of that approach. I think it, what it boils down to is because my background's in theater, I tend to look at each piece of magic as a little one-act play, right? And if if it's a little one-act play, it has an opening line, and the opening line should be something that that hooks the audience interest in. And so in the case of there's a bill transposition routine that I perform, and the first line of it is, Tonight's first subject, the con, the grift, bunco, hustle, racket, flim-flam. I have to admit, I've become fascinated by the art of the swindle in its many forms, always changing, always evolving. And now we're in. Yeah. Right? And that's, that's in the first line spoken. And that's what it should do. Something in what I say has to convey to the audience, this is important. Something amazing is going to happen. And if you're not paying attention, you're gonna miss it. And so I strive, what I strive for is that everything I say, especially at the beginning of the piece, has to convey, pay attention, this is important. Something cool is about to happen. Yep. And then the final line is a blackout line. And the blackout line is like if we were in a theater, the last line of the play is spoken, the stage lights go to black, and the audience realizes, oh, that's the end. We can now respond. And they start applauding. So usually the blackout line is an applause cue line that puts the punctuation on the end of the narrative. Because, they're, because in some sense... Even though you'll hear gasps and and <gasps> what and things like that when you're performing magic, in some sense they're reserving their response for the end, <laughs> right? So you have to give them the opportunity, the outlet in which to do that. The way you do that is by giving them an applause cue that tells them on, on an unconscious level oh, that's the end, we can express our ourselves now, collectively, you know, as an audience, as a collective. So I give them that line, and it, it, the line at the end of that bill transposition routine is, as I've, I'm tucking away the money in my pocket, I say, and that, my friends, is a lesson in positive cash flow. And that functions as an applause cue. It's clear that that means this is, that's the end we can now respond as a collective. So the the listeners uh, last episode heard Eli Marks perform his uh, the trick that he thinks he invented, uh, which you'll find out later he didn't, but he thinks he did, called the ambitious dog, which is his take on an ambitious uh, card. Do you have any advice for, for Eli in how he set up that story and, and how to make that a, a more effective trick? I think Eli suffers from a common problem in magic, and that's not knowing when to stop. I think magicians get get so jazzed on the high of a successful performance that then they're like, but that's not the end. Here's more. 
and they they continue and then they do more and then they do more and then at the at some point diminishing returns kicks in because the in a sense the audience starts to become numb to the experience of mystery the more you club them over the head with it so uh, so but, your advice to Eli uh, first piece of advice would be less is more well in the sense of you know he does a routine that sort of starts with what magicians call the Chicago opener and that's where a chosen cards the back of the chosen card seems to change color and then that leads into the deck a color changing deck and then that leads into the ambitious card and and so now it becomes th this extended routine now that's that's fun clearly the audience enjoyed it but would they be able to describe what happened afterward to someone who wasn't there? Whereas if he had stopped after after the deck changed color or after the, the dog card, the doggy card jumped to the top three times, that the audience would have been able to convey to somebody in a sentence. But he's but he is being smart in that he's I, it, the word isn't anthropomorphizing, but he's he's canine pomorphizing the card and giving it an identity. So now, now the card, what happens to the card, is important to the people in the audience, particularly the person he's, the volunteer he's working with, and that's part of the challenge of magic. How do I make finding your selected card important? How do I make this important for the audience? And that's one way to do it. Give the thing an identity. Because we care, because even though we know Nemo in, in Finding Nemo is a cartoon, it's not a living creature, we become attached to Nemo, right? <laughs> Emotionally. And that's because that's what human beings do. It has an identity. It has a personality. And then we can't help but attach ourselves to it. That's just what human beings do. So by by canine pomorphizing the card, he gives it an identity, and now it's important, and we care about what happens to it. Well, yeah, I've got to agree uh, with David on his assessment of Eli's card trick, which of course is my card trick. But I'm going to blame it on on Eli here that the the trap magicians fall into is not knowing when to quit. Have you ever had a problem? with uh, a trick that just went on and on and on? You know, uh, the only thing I, that comes to mind for me is um, I conceived a method for uh, the original hauntings that I did. Um, and the method was, you know, not magical at all, was very convoluted. Uh, and because it was convoluted, the uh, setup and the resolution were so far apart that that it never quite got the the reaction that I wanted. So the second time I mounted the show, I changed how it all went together and I moved things. So I put the pressure on the people backstage uh, to get something done very, very quickly and and get it back to me so that I could continue. And and that really changed the game completely. I, I'm, I know I'm being uh, a pen and teller, speaking of pen and teller, David fooled them, but I know I'm being kind of a pen 
uh, obtuse here, but I have to be. Right. Uh, but but by doing that, by noticing, oh, this is to, why is this not getting your action? Because because they think to themselves, well, if I had that much time, I could probably figure out a way to do this. But in changing that little tiny thing and making it go boom, boom, A, B, rather than A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, here we are. Uh, it made a difference to the audience's reaction and my satisfaction, consequently. Well, it's what we learned from uh, John Carney last season, that uh, simple is hard. It's hard to make things simple. And as you just sort of buried the lead there, uh, David did, in fact, fool Penn and Teller. I put a, a link in the uh, show notes to a video of him doing that for them and fooling them. You know, the great thing about that routine, too, is uh, David was involved in a car accident. He was hit by a car and his leg was broken. And so he you normally is standing uh, for most of his magic prior to that and wanted to conceive a routine that allowed him to sit down. So uh, in typical David Parr fashion, uh, conceived a brilliant routine that ends up fooling Penn and Teller. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I'm sorry you had to be hit by a car for that yeah. to happen. Sometimes you get your best work <laughs> that way. And I, I haven't tried it yet, but uh, I'm, I'm considering it. It's on the list. So um, when it comes to, to scripting, uh, David is the best. We've got a, a link in the show notes for another short video of David. He stuck around after we chatted and talked specifically about scripting and, and how to script a routine and, and uh, his process, which, as you mentioned, was it's just the silliest thing. It's just he takes notes and notes and notes and notes and notes and notes and then uh, goes through the notes and puts together a routine. It sounds uh, it's not as simple as it sounds, I'm sure. I, but it's a, but it, it's brilliant because I've been with him and he carries a little notebook and I've been with him uh, and he will just stop in his tracks and go, oh, and write something down. And I'll go, what, what are you doing? Well, that over there made me think this, and I'm just making a note of that so that later I can transfer it to a, uh, an index card that will go into my file. And I'm like, wow, okay. Uh, it's just, oh, it's kind of fun to watch the process from this far out. It's, uh, it's really cool. Very cool. Very dedicated to um, his art uh, of entertaining people in a way that takes an enormous amount of work and thought, but in the final analysis, the final product that you see as, a, as an audience member, it's seamless and terrific. Yep. Seamless and perfect. Yep. In the opening sentence and you're there for the rest of the thing. So it's great. It is. And his, his uh, uh, tips on uh, script writing uh, in that video don't apply to just magicians. Uh, they work for screenwriting and novel writing. And in fact, um, I've used a similar technique for years with Eli Marks, where I took just had a word file and I get a note and put it down. And there were sometimes I would have 40 pages of just stuff, of just ideas of a line of this or remember this trick or this, here's something Harry could say. And then when it came time to write, you just go through and go, oh, I should grab that one. I should grab that one. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, it's uh, he's a that's a, a foolproof method. And how about the, the takeaway for me uh, about script writing from this interview was to do it like you would do a term paper. Start mm -hmm. with your open, 
go to your clothes and then draw a line between the two. And man, when he said it, it was light bulbs just boo, 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 boo for me. Yes, of course. Why didn't I, why didn't I use that? I, I've, written, I've written term papers before. Why did I not come to that conclusion sooner? But how, how great that is and, and how it takes some of the pressure off you as you stare at that page. Uh, yeah, there's nothing worse than a blank page. And uh, in the world of novel writing, they say, go ahead and write the write a bad novel because it's easier to fix a bad novel than it is to stare at a blank page. Amen. And that's very, very true. And speaking of bad novels. Oh, no. hey, now come on. Don't you bad mouth the bullet catch. We're listening to chapter five on this episode, right? Yes, we are listening to chapter five. Last time uh, in chapter four, uh, just to sort of quickly recap, Eli had a nice chat with Harry about going to the reunion. Uh, he met Roger Edison. He did. Uh, he watched Jake do a a bad version of a card trick and he met Trish Henry and he did his, uh, his version of uh, the ambitious dog that, uh, that David uh, just tore apart for us. So with that, let's jump right into uh, chapter five. The bullet catch an Eli Marks mystery. Chapter five. So, are you allowed to tell me how you did that card trick, or would you then have to kill me? I smiled and shrugged, still amazed Trish had let me buy her a drink and marveling at the fact we were having an actual conversation. The sad thing about magic, I finally said, is that the solution, when it finally comes, is almost always a letdown and a disappointment. Well, I certainly don't need more disappointments, she said dryly, and then quickly changed topics. So should we join everyone out on the observation deck? Trish was gesturing to the large picture window through which we could see the majority of the party which was taking place under the night sky. I felt a familiar sensation of rubberiness race through my legs and hollowness in my stomach at the thought of getting that close to the 40-story drop. No thanks, I said. I've got um seasonal allergies. Need to avoid the night, the outside the outside tonight. Smooth, I thought. Very smooth. Oh, come out just for a moment. You have to say hello to Dylan, my husband. You remember Dylan, right? Dylan Ratner? Wasn't he the guidance counselor? They made a guidance counselor because you can't just be the tennis coach? You married the tennis coach? I was rambling, trying my best to stay put. No, silly. Dylan LaSalle. There he is. She pointed out the window, and I peered through the crowd, finally spotting Dylan LaSalle. I was surprised to see him, as I would have guessed he'd be in prison by now, or at the very least just getting out. He was in a very close conversation with a woman I didn't recognize. The way his hand cupped her shoulder, I would have pegged her as his wife, and not the woman currently sitting next to me. I could sense Trish was regretting pointing him out at this particular moment. Oh, he's such a flirt she said, adding a hollow laugh. You know me, I always had a soft spot for the bad boys. If that were really true, then she had hit the bad boy jackpot with Dylan LaSalle. The fact he made it to graduation without going to jail, I attributed more to the boys-will-be-boys attitude rampant at our school than to any innate intelligence, although he did possess a raw charm that had gotten him out of many scrapes. Our paths hadn't crossed much during high school, but that was not by chance alone. 
most people with any sense had wisely stayed out of his way. The necessity to coax me out to the observation deck vanished as I saw Dylan headed our way, holding two empty drink glasses in his hands. He was clearly on his way to the bar for a refill for himself and his new best friend, but he readjusted his course when he saw Trish waving him over. Just freshening up some drinks, he said to Trish with a too-wide smile. Can I get you anything? Trish shook her head. I wanted you to say hello to Eli Marks, she said. You remember Eli, right? Absolutely, he said in a tone that convinced me he had no idea who I was. He put out a hand for a handshake and then realized he didn't have a spare hand to shake. He finally settled for a quick fist bump. How you been, man? Can't complain, I said flatly. At least not since they instituted the no complaining rule. My joke, such as it was, produced a polite laugh. I hear you, he said, turning his head to watch a young woman pass by. There's a lot of that going around. Eli just did a great magic trick, Trish said, trying to pump some life into a conversation that had immediately flatlined. He's quite the magician. Great. I got ten extra pounds I'd love to see disappear, Dylan said, belying the fact that he was not just in good shape, but scary good shape. Think you can help me out? Here's the secret. Diet and exercise, I replied. <laughs> You're no fun, Dylan said, and at this moment, I couldn't help but agree with him. There was something about his oily personality and demeanor that sucked the fun right out of me. I just wanted to get away from him and was almost willing to move out to the observation deck if that would have done the trick. Thankfully, he pulled the plug on the conversation and took us out of our misery. Well, gotta hit the bar, then the head, he said. You know what they say, you don't buy beer, you rent it. He winked and smiled and slipped away before I could point out that he wasn't drinking beer. But since that might have extended the conversation, I was glad I had kept my mouth shut. There was an awkward moment with Trish. I broke the silence. So, you and Dylan, I finally said. Yep, she said, agreeing unconvincingly. Coming up on 12 years. To be honest... I'll be surprised if we make it to Lucky 13, she added, her voice dropping in volume. Tired of bad boys? I asked. Trish nodded. The trouble with bad boys, she said sadly, is that sometimes, deep down, they're actually bad. Before I could comment on that dark aphorism, she steered the conversation away from herself and directly at me. So, magic man... I see no ring upon your hand nor girlfriend on your arm. What gives? Well, I said, not sure how to phrase my current situation. I'm sort of on a break. We're, we're on a break. The woman I'm seeing and I are on a break. Trish leaned forward, looking interested and concerned. And what exactly does that mean? Over the next 20 minutes, I did my best to explain what I thought it might mean. In the process, I detailed my divorce from the current assistant district attorney and her swift remarriage to one of the lead homicide detectives on the force. I outlined how Megan and I had met, the bizarre circumstances that had brought us together, and how that had grown into what I had hoped would be a lasting relationship. You know how sometimes you just fit with someone? Like the two of you were somehow designed to be together? I was having trouble finding the right words. Not from personal experience, no, she said. 
but I understand the concept. She gave me a wry smile. But in the end, I guess it was too much too soon, I said. At least it was for her. So we're apart for the time being. I don't know, maybe forever. It's just bad, I added. Trish shook her head once again, dazzling me with her smile. Eli, if I've learned anything since leaving high school, she said confidently, it's that nothing bad lasts forever. I hadn't planned to close the event down, but before I knew it, the two bartenders announced last call before packing up their liquor bottles and rolling their portable bars out of the room. Jake and I were one-upping each other, delighting Trish with our stories of high school humiliations. It was fun to make her laugh, and we were both up to the challenge, with exaggerated stories of ritualistic hazings and inopportune public nudity. The crowd had thinned considerably, and Jake was just finishing a story of a run-in with a dreaded P.E. teacher when Dylan appeared at our table. He looked bleary and a little unsteady on his feet. Jake cut the story short as Trish got up and took Dylan's arm. Looks like it's time to go home, she said. I think you've had enough fun for one night. Dylan smiled wickedly and then suddenly jerked his arm away, stumbling a bit as he backed away from her. The fun's over when I say it's over, he said, not quite focusing on anyone in particular. With that, he turned and headed toward the door. Trish shrugged and picked up her purse. It's pumpkin time, she said, but this has been really fun seeing you both. She looked at me and smiled. Right back at you, Jake said before I could reply. We'll walk you out. As we followed her across the now near empty room, Jake shot me a wicked smile, mouthing the words, she likes me. I playfully punched him on the arm and he struck a boxing stance as we headed toward the door. Trish, keeping one eye on her husband ahead of her, turned and laughed at our antics. The four of us stepped out of the room and into the hall. And that's when I remembered that I was forty stories up and four feet away from an open railing. Although I couldn't see over the edge, I knew what lay below me and I felt my stomach drop, not the full forty stories, but enough to make my throat go bone dry as my heart began to race. I thought for a moment of diving back into the room, but we were on the move and I couldn't think of an excuse for breaking up our juggernaut. I looked ahead, seeing how much ground we had to cover before I could get away from the railing, and then I realized our destination was the dreaded bank of elevators. My head was spinning from both the beer and the fear as I looked around, desperately hoping to find a stairwell I could duck into. Walking down 40 flights of stairs would be a cakewalk compared to stepping into that glass elevator again. Seeing I had slowed, both Jake and Trish held back for a moment to let me catch up, each grabbing my arm as Dylan yelled from the elevator, Our ride's here, people. Let's step it up. The two of them pulled me along, laughing, and we rounded the corner and stumbled into the elevator. I was hurled forward due to inertia, my hands pushing against the glass of the elevator to slow my momentum. This gave me an unwanted and stomach-churning bird's-eye view of the atrium and the dizzying distance to the ground. I involuntarily backed away from the glass, but the elevator door had closed and we were on our way, dropping with what felt like 
great speed. And then we stopped at the 38th floor to let some more people in. Dylan and Jake had gotten into a conversation about elevators and the tallest buildings they had ever been in, none of which was helping my situation. I gulped, trying to breathe and coming up short. And then Trisha's hand was on my shoulder. Are you okay? she asked softly. I shook my head. I was having trouble getting words out. Heights. Not good with heights, I finally stammered. She nodded sympathetically. My kid brother had a similar problem. Couldn't go through tunnels. It was hell on family car trips. But this usually worked. Sing with me. Come on. She started singing jingle bells, slowly and softly. Sweat was dripping down the back of my neck, and there was a buzzing in my ears, but I did my best to concentrate and listen to her sing. Jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle all the way. Oh, what fun it is to ride in a one-horse open sleigh. I did my best to sing along, my voice cracking and ragged as she pushed on through the song, looking deep into my eyes as we sang. I started to breathe again and got caught up in the rhythm of the song, relieved to have something else to focus on as the elevator continued its plunge to the lobby. We made it through a verse, a chorus, and the next verse before the elevator finally came to a stop and the doors opened onto blessed, solid ground. What are you two singing back there? Jake yelled as we piled out of the elevator. Eli was just reminding me of our school anthem, Trish lied, throwing a knowing smile in my direction. Really? Dylan mumbled. Sounded like a Christmas carol to me. The valet brought their car first, and we helped get Dylan into the passenger seat. He had mellowed in the warm night air and was probably asleep soon after we shut the car door. Trish handed a five to the valet and then turned to Jake and me. This was a lot more fun than it had any right to be, she said with a glance toward her husband, whose head was slumped against the passenger window. I'll look you up next time I'm in town, Jake said. Or you could always come spend a weekend with me in L.A. Yeah, that's not going to happen, Trish said with a smile. Never say never, Jake said. I'll see you around, she said as she got into the car. I was sure she had said it directly to me, but I sensed Jake would argue that point. We both waved as she pulled out of the hotel's shrub-lined driveway. She's a hoot and a half, Jake finally said. Of course, she is married, I reminded him. Sometimes that makes it more fun, he said with a grin. Yes, but she's married, I repeated, as much to him as to myself. He gave his ticket to the valet as I watched Trish and Dylan, the not-so-happily-married couple, drive away. Yes, Eli, Jake conceded. She is married. That was true, but only provisionally. The next time I would see Trish LaSalle, she'd be a widow. I'm just uh, a goofy fan of that closing line of that chapter. The next time I saw her, she'd be a widow because it is so it's such a film noir line makes you want to turn the page, which which was the idea.
we'll see what happens uh, to make her a widow uh, in the next episode. But we're also going to get hit by a car. Yeah, maybe. No, that's not (laughs) what happens. But close, close. Next episode, we're going to be continuing this series of interviews uh, under the general heading of Building a Better Magician. And we found another fantastic guest where that is concerned. Um, A fellow who actually has helped actors look like magicians on screen. Great guy. Jonathan Levitt is going to be our guest. I was first introduced to Jonathan Levitt on the TV show Celebra Cadabra, right. on which he was a host and a judge, and which I watched early on to, to see how, how you put magic into a story without giving away how it's done. And they did a great job. If you, uh, if you enjoy watching celebrities go crazy trying to do magic, I would highly recommend looking up uh, Celebra Cadabra. And, and just for those of us, just a, a, a kind of a quick it, it's like dancing with the stars, except the talent is magic. You have to learn a, a whole routine and perform it in front of a, a specific audience every week. It was very nicely produced, and I wish they made more of them, but they didn't. You can also see Jonathan uh, in a great episode of The X-Files. With Ricky J. With Ricky J. yeah. So yeah. we're looking forward to talking to him next episode about what, uh, what it means to be a magic consultant. And he's got some great inside stories there. But that's it for us for this episode. If you like us, I think you might, because you're still here at this late point in the show. I'm, I'm, I'm not even sure Jim is still here. Are you still here, Jim? Hello. Oh, there you go. Jim's still here. Yeah, if you like us, uh, go and uh, just rate us. Just give us a star rating. You don't even have to write any words. Nope. There's a link in the show notes to click on that will just give us rating. And what that does is it just gets this show to more people. We just want to get in front of as many people as we can. So yeah. please give us a rating. That's right. This is uh, this is a labor of love, and you can help by subscribing and giving us a quick star rating. It would be much appreciated. Uh, we appreciate you being here at all. Really, we do. Honestly. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. This has been Behind the Page, the Eli Marks podcast with your hosts, John Gaspard and Jim Cunningham. Produced by Albert's Bridge Books at Grass Lake Studios. Find this podcast and all the books in the Eli Marks series at elimarksmysteries.com. That's E-L-I-M-A-R-K-S mysteries.com. And thanks for listening. Thank you.